Tonight, Justin Trudeau breaks with the Western democracies of the UN and votes in a bloc with Cuba, Syria, North Korea, and other dictatorships. It's November 28th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign, and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. In a shocking series of eight United Nations votes in a row, Canada broke with our diplomatic tradition, broke with our allies, and most importantly, broke with our Canadian values and our national interests by actively defending a dictatorship at the United Nations. Here are the details. It was a series of votes earlier this month. The subject was human rights violations in Cuba. Now, I know that for some Cuban Canadians, Cuba is a cheap holiday. Of course it's cheap. It's a communist dictatorship, a prison island that has been kept artificially poor because of that dictatorship and because U.S. tourists cannot easily go there. So going there is sort of predatory by Canadians looking to vacation on the cheap. And worse, the regime takes all that hard foreign currency and uses it to pay for its nefarious activities. You're exploiting Cubans and you're subsidizing the Castros, but hey, you saved a hundred bucks on your vacation. Well, there are still some people who care about Cuban human rights. And the United States put forward eight votes at the UN about those. I'm not gonna read all eight in detail, but I'll skim them at least to show you how obvious it is that we ought to support these votes and how shocking it is that we didn't. Now this information comes from UN Watch, which is leading human rights NGO that keeps a close eye on how the UN ignores the worst dictatorships in the world. UN Watch is based in Geneva, Switzerland, where the UN's human rights headquarters is also. UN Watch is actually run by a Canadian. We've interviewed him on our show before. Hillel Neuer is his name. And he's the only one I've seen who's held Trudeau to account on this issue. I haven't seen any of this in any other Canadian media, have you? I mean, let me know if you have. Uh, I haven't, and I think I pay close attention to this stuff. But hey, every journalist in this country is auditioning for their share of the $595 million Trudeau slush fund right now. So why would they write something embarrassing about their soon-to-be boss? Anyways, here's the facts. Here's the actual wording of the UN resolutions. Now, they're debating the US embargo on Cuba that I mentioned. Canada obviously doesn't support the embargo, but that's not what the vote was about. The vote was about amendments, particular details, not the embargo itself. So let me make that clear. This is not about whether or not America should em embargo Cuba. You may have a different opinion on me than that. But let me read the amendments, this first one, in full. And you tell me which side Canada should be on. You tell me what's objectionable to this. Ready? So the vote was about whether or not to add these words to the preamble. Expressing serious concern that in Cuba, the severe lack of access to information and freedom of expression, the complete absence of judicial independence, and arbitrary arrests and detentions are undermining the collective efforts to implement Sustainable Development Goal 161, meant to promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. Okay, that's it. That's a, that's a proposed amendment. It's one of eight amendments. It's not, I mean, would you not agree that Cuba has no freedom of speech, no freedom of the press, no independent judiciary? Of course it's true. Don't take it from me and don't take it from America. Take it from a left-wing group called Reporters Without Borders. 
which says this. So their, their country report on Cuba, they say, a self-styled socialist republic with a single party, Cuba continues to be Latin America's worst media freedom violator year after year. Fidel Castro's death in 2016 has changed nothing. The Castro family, which has ruled since 1959, maintains an almost total media monopoly, and the Constitution prohibits privately owned media. I didn't know that. Arbitrary arrest and imprisonment, threats, smear campaigns, confiscation of equipment and closures of websites are the most common forms of harassment, which is constant and is buttressed by an arsenal of restrictive laws. Yeah, that's pretty much what that amendment vote was about, wasn't it? And Canada voted against the U.S. amendment. I shouldn't say Canada voted against it because it wasn't Canada, it was Justin Trudeau who instructed Christia Freeland to have our diplomats vote against that. I, and here's an electronic image of the voting board at the UN. Now just hold that up on the screen for a minute. So red means voting against it, voting against the US amendment, voting really in support of Cuba instead. Green is voting along with the Americans and yellow is the aptly chosen color for those two cowardly to vote either way. So red is the color of communist Cuba, I guess. And green is the color of freedom here, freedom for Cubans. And just four countries voted for this amendment. The US, as you can see, uh, Israel, Ukraine, and Swaziland, which is called Eswatini on this chart. I've never heard it referred to that, that way, but that's what it means. Uh, I think it's pitiful that countries like Switzerland or the United Kingdom or Italy voted to abstain from this, but fine. 64 abstentions, most of them democracies, by the way. Others were uh, U.S. allies. But look at Canada. Canada outright voted against this. It's in red with all the dictatorships. <laughs> oh, well, well, Trudeau's never been big on freedom of speech, and that's what that was about. But how about his signature issue? I mean, he's a male feminist. I put aside the fact that he admitted to sexually assaulting a female reporter named Rose Knight in Creston, B.C. back in August of 2000. But rhetorically, at least, Trudeau says he's a feminist. A lot of male feminists are covering up for something but, but just for a moment, let's focus on Trudeau's rhetoric, not his actions, and compare his rhetoric about feminism to the amendment put forward by the United States at the United Nations. And, and here's the, the next resolution. Expressing serious concern that in Cuba, the absence of women from the most powerful decision-making bodies, including the Executive Committee of the Council of Ministers and senior military leadership, severely undermines the collective efforts to implement Sustainable Development Goal 51, meant to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls by countering the deeply rooted gender-based discrimination that results from patriarchal attitudes and related social norms. All right, so it's pure feminist motion. Or as Trudeau once, would, once said, because it's 2015. Now, this doesn't even call for Cuba to be a democracy. It just points out that in the dictatorship itself, the bullies, the military bullies, the political bullies, they're all dudes. I mean, surely Trudeau can get behind a socialist military thug with gender parity. I mean, he's for communists, he's for the military, they're fine, 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 but how about just some women there? I mean, Trudeau's all about gender analysis for pipelines and transgender analysis now too. Where are they in the Cuban regime, eh? Mr. Because it's 2018. Um, well, Trudeau doesn't really care. He's siding with the old boys club, literally old boys. Raul Castro is 87. 
That's who Trudeau's for. Uh, let's look at the vote. Hold that up on the, on the bit. Now it's only got three good guys, the three green countries, U.S., Ukraine, and Israel. I don't know how we lost the Swazis there, but we did. Again, 115 brave, courageous abstainers. That's normally where Canada stands with the abstainers, hiding in the shadow on these things. But not today. No, sir. Justin Trudeau bravely stands with Raul Castro and Iran and Syria and North Korea in opposing this American feminist motion. Can someone explain that one to me? Okay, you read it. It did not even call for freedom. It just called for more women to be amongst the dictators. That's sort of Trudeau's space, too, when you think of it. But not here. Isn't that funny? And by funny, I mean not funny. Okay, here's another one. Uh, this is one of the amendments that Canada was on the wrong side of. This is about labor unions. Trudeau should like that, right? I mean, he's joined at the hip with Jerry Diaz these days. Here's the wording. Expressing serious concern that in Cuba, the trade union monopoly of the Central Union of Cuban Workers, the prohibition on the right to strike, and restrictions on collective bargaining and agreements, including that government authorities and Central Union officials have the final say on all such agreements, severely undermine the collective efforts to implement Sustainable Development Goal 81, meant to promote sustained and inclusive economic growth and full and productive employment and decent work for all. Nope. No, sir. Still just the three good guys, the U.S., Ukraine, and Israel. 65 cowards, including Theresa May of the United Kingdom, Angela Merkel of Germany, Emmanuel Macron from France, etc. But Trudeau broke away from the cowards and joined the pro-Cuban anti-worker group. He, he likes the fact, he's voting for it, that Cuba doesn't allow unions. It doesn't allow collective bargaining. There's just this one fake union that the government forces everyone to be in and the government tells them what the deal is. Imagine that, being pro-Castro and anti-union, but of course. Now, I'm not going to go through all eight of these resolutions, but trust me, they're all like this. Uh, This one, uh, I'll just read this quickly because it's so short. Calls upon Cuba to fully granted citizens internationally recognized civil, political, and economic rights and freedoms, including freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, and free access to information. That's pretty basic stuff. That's like section two of our chart of rights. But no, no, Trudeau's with Castro. On this one, only the US, Israel, Ukraine, and this time, the Marshall Islands, population 53,000, are for freedom, but not Trudeau. There was another motion on safe civil society. That means things like rotary clubs or student clubs, just letting people meet without the government telling them what to do. Trudeau sided with the tyrant on that one. Let me show you this next one just for specificity. This one urges Cuba to end widespread and serious restrictions in law and in practice on the right to freedom of expression, opinion, associations, and peaceful assembly. And and then get this, this is interesting, including both online and offline, including by ending the harassment, intimidation, and persecution of political opponents, human rights defenders, women's and minority rights activists, labor leaders, student rights activists, journalists, bloggers, social media users, social media page administrators, media workers, religious leaders, and lawyers. That, that, that sounds like a list of social justice warriors actually fighting for justice. No, Trudeau was not moved by this. He voted against it. He sided with Castro against his own people 
There was one about harsh and punitive jail sentences, something Trudeau rails against here in Canada. He likes sentences the most lenient possible, but he loves the long prison terms in Cuba. That was one of the resolutions he voted with Cuba on. Again and again, eight times. This wasn't staying neutral in the face of evil, which is execrable, which surely we have learned from history. No, no. This was positively choosing to side with Cuba, to side with evil against our American allies, and more importantly than our allies, the idea of freedom that is supposedly our idea too. Why? Why are we doing this? Again, not we. Why is Trudeau doing this to us? Well, look at this. Here's an article a few weeks back. Gives us a hint. Canada's brain-injured Cuba diplomats speak out about Ottawa's silence. I don't know if you remember this story, but Canadian diplomats and American diplomats had complained that Cuba was using some sort of weapon, I don't know, microwaves likely, sonic waves of some sort, to shoot at diplomats and injure them when they were in their home or their office. Here's a New York Times article on the same subject. Um, their headline is 25th person at U.S. Embassy in Cuba is mysteriously sickened. Here's how the Globe and Mail described it for, for how it happened to the Canadian diplomats and their families. Let me read this. I don't know if you remember this. Starting in the spring of 2017, a dozen embassy staff and their family members, including eight adults and four children, almost simultaneously began experiencing symptoms including gushing nosebleeds, ringing in the ears, fits of nausea, dizziness, incapacitating headaches, and mental impairment, often striking most intensely in their homes, in their homes, late at night. Those affected represented about a third of the embassy staff. That is terrifying. That's some sort of microwave weapon. They're frying your brains. It's terrifying. It happened in Canada and the United States. It's a weapon. It actually happened in, in China also against uh, embassies there. Donald Trump has been hostile to Cuba in comparison to Barack Obama. I don't know if you remember, Obama actually went to Cuba, normalized relations on the U.S. side, at least to a degree, and got nothing in return from Castro. No liberalization, nothing. Trump ended that charade. It's barbaric, but it's, it's not too surprising that Cuba, a regime that treats its own citizens as prisoners, would abuse American diplomats under Trump with those microwave weapons. But Canada, I mean, Trudeau is just as bad as Obama, he gave everything to Castro, morally, politically, diplomatically. He, he gave him this huge PR win, this propaganda win, and Trudeau got nothing in return. Trudeau gave, gave Cuba a, a PR win, huge, and Cuba still attacks our diplomats. I mean, it would be, it's evil to attack diplomats with this weapon in any way, but Canada has given Cuba everything, and yet they attack our diplomats, and of course Trudeau still loves them, still won't lift a finger against them and now votes for them at the UN. And according to diplomats who spoke with the Globe and Mail, it's because Trudeau wants Cuba's vote and other dictatorships vote so that Canada can sit on some obscure panel called the United Nations Security Council. Here, let me quote from the Globe and Mail. They are afraid of, afraid of a set in Cuba because of Canada's bid for a UN Security Council seat, one diplomat said. Canada is in the midst of an intensive lobbying campaign to win a rotating seat on the United Nations Security Council in 2021-22. Cuba is considered vital to such UN votes as it holds influence over many African and Latin American UN member states. Now, of course, that's true. 
I don't know if you remember, Trudeau bought free tickets for every dictatorship in the world to attend a Canadian-themed Broadway show called Come From Away. Seriously, Canadian taxpayers gave free tickets to dictatorships to watch that show. Now, most didn't even bother to show up. The theater was half empty, but it was part of Trudeau's pitiful campaign to bribe diplomats to vote for him to have a seat at the Security Council for two years. That is a meaningless, pointless symbol. I mean, the UN Security Council itself is important, but these rotating seats, they're pointless. It's perfect for Trudeau, I understand, but they're actually worthless. Just to recap, the United Nations is pretty, pretty much worthless anyways. Every country is part of the General Assembly, it's called, and it's a big top, talk shop that really accomplishes nothing, and everyone has one vote, it's all equal there. But the UN Security Council, the grown-ups, they have five permanent members. United States, Russia, China, and for reasons of history and sentimentality, UK and France. Now, all those countries have a veto. Each of them has a veto, as in any one of them can just stop anything they don't like. But other temporary countries can sit with the grown-ups at the grown-ups table. They can get up from the kids' table and move over to the grown-ups for two years and bask in the glow of the five grown-ups for a couple of years in a row. No power, no veto, just a photo op, which is why Trudeau likes it. And these countries get to vote um, get onto the Security Council through a vote from uh, all, all the member states. And there are many more tyrants in the United Nations than Democrats. So Trudeau is sucking up to all the dictatorships to give him one of these temporary seats. So now I think it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Israel and Ukraine, who are voting with America every time, they really need America's help diplomatically, big time. So they return the favor to America all the time. It's just a vote in the UN. It doesn't even matter. Most democracies like the United States and love America protecting them and letting them sell their goods into the American market. But unfortunately, most uh, democracies also like distancing themselves from America for political points. Think of the coward Emmanuel Macron in, in France. Canada used to be there, as in we love America, we benefit from America, but we don't like to appear too pro-American in public. So we would go neutral, but now we're no longer neutral, we're no longer abstaining, we have gone over to the other side. Look, that's not Canada. That's Trudeau. Remember his eulogy for Fidel Castro, calling him a great man, beloved by everyone, and even his enemies would admit he loved Cuba. That's what Trudeau said when Castro died. He said even Tr Castro's enemies admitted he loved the nation. What? They were in prison or dead. Trudeau was so in love with dictatorships like China and Cuba that he is upending a century of close political and diplomatic cooperation with the United States, more than a century with America and our NATO allies that goes back far before the creation of NATO, goes back to the Great War, goes back to the British Empire. We were one of the good guys. We weren't neutral. We fought in Flanders Fields. We fought on Juneau Beach. We were not abstainers. And we sure as hell weren't enemies. But Trudeau has made us into that. That's the grossest fact you will hear today. Other than this fact, Trudeau's slush fund media didn't report on this, did they? Because they either agree with Trudeau on Cuba or because they simply don't want to embarrass their new boss and his $595 million media slush fund. Stay with us. More ahead.
Welcome back. Well, earlier this month, we brought you the shocking news of Airbnb deciding to ban any Jews living in the West Bank from using their app. Airbnb, of course, allows homeowners to rent out a room or even their entire house online as if it's a hotel. Uh, they operate in some of the most controversial parts of the world. You can use Airbnb to book a room in Tibet, occupied by China, or in the Rakhine province of Burma, where the Rohingya are in jeopardy. But only Israel, only the West Bank, and only Jews in the West Bank are banned from using the app. Muslims in the same towns are allowed to use them. Joining us now via Skype is one Jew in the West Bank of Israel who is... T the target of this ban, his name is Giddy Kelman. He joins us now, Vice Guy. Giddy, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for being interested. Uh, now, I know it's nighttime over there in Israel, so you might not be able to show us around your place, but you've sent us some photos. Tell me a little bit about your property. Um, how long have you been renting it out on Airbnb? How many times have people come to visit? What's it like? I've been here since 2006. Our BNB, our chalet, uh, I built it myself. It's all handmade. It's been uh, active for about uh, two, two and a half years. And we've been working with Airbnb uh, just under a year. Um, so we get, we have other sources that send us clients. And obviously, all the clients we have are, you know, they come back again. We have clients from all around the world, a lot of Israelis, Americans, Canadians, English, people from Belgium, you know, all around. And uh, how, how important is Airbnb uh, to your business? I mean, is it a lucrative source of money? How many times have people booked your chalet on Airbnb? Well, for my place, I said, we do two things. We have people staying over like an uh, like a BNB and we have different sessions yoga meditation permaculture um, natural birth control things like this in the same premises so some of the income comes from Airbnb and some from other platforms and some is not connected to this at all but many businesses in Judea and Samaria are definitely uh, very badly harmed from this uh, anti-semitic uh, decision because they are just BNBs uh, uh, and uh, maybe 18, 90, sometimes more percent is based on Airbnb. And by the way, we didn't get a message up till now that they're doing this boycott. We Only from the news we know this, from the media. So has the boycott kicked in? Have you actually been banned? Has your account been shut down or is it just a statement out of San Francisco? Uh, well, I, I checked it last about uh, three days ago. It was still active. Um, as far as I know, it's supposed to be not active in like or now or maybe tomorrow, the next few days. Um, you know, I believe that income comes from God, so I'm sure he's going to take care of us. But the feeling of being discriminated in such an uh, evil way is definitely very upsetting, takes us back to very dark uh, times in history. And um, the truth is, I think that Airbnb made a big mistake because they are an amazing platform from actually connecting people. That should be their logo. Because when you go to another country and you, instead of going to a hotel, you go to someone's house, you actually sit with them, talk to them, meet them. This is a great uh, opportunity to connect people. So they're doing the opposite.
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, now tell me, uh, has the Israeli government or has any local governments in uh, the West Bank, do they have any legal plan or political plan to push back? I mean, I don't know if, if this would break a law, if this would be against an anti-discrimination statute either in America or in Israel. Have you heard anything about that? Well, first of all, I want to say my personal opinion uh, I will be very happy if Airbnb is uh, is sued uh, and in the states, and I, we, I will definitely join that if it happens. I know there's a few, quite a few serious uh, uh, attorneys working on uh, su uh, uh, lawsuits like this, and there are some Israeli uh, anti-Zionist, very left organizations that were basically pushing Airbnb to do this act. One of them is called Shuat Hadin, and the other one is called Kerem Navot. And both of them have uh, put a lot of pressure on Airbnb to do this act, and I hope they're sued as well. I don't think Airbnb should be banned from Israel because a lot of people, it's their source of income. And the way I'm uh, very upset that someone tries to harm my source of income, I have no intention of doing the same thing to someone else in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or by the way, by my Arab neighbors. I'm very happy that uh, neighbors in Bethlehem or in Jericho, wherever they should be, should make a living and make good money that prevents them doing other things. So I'm, I'm much more happy with a, a well-financed neighbor, although some of them are not my side, than a hungry neighbor. So I, uh, would, I'm against discrimination of uh, anyone, especially Airbnb, in anyone, anywhere, mm -hmm. including in Palestinian neighborhoods close to me. That's a good point. If, if tourism is a uh, reliable source of income for your Arab neighbors, um, that, I suppose, relieves the pressure on them to, to make money by appeasing Hamas or the PLO and committing terror. And more to the point, it, it puts them in a good face forward. They're, they want to put their best face forward to the world to, to welcome visitors. I, that's a very thoughtful way of looking at it. Um, now, how close or where are you geographically? Are you able to step outside and, and show me? Uh, I know it's nighttime there, but uh, can, can you show me where you are relative to other recognizable cities or towns? I'll try. So if we're looking towards the lights over there, that's Jerusalem just behind me. So you're very close to Jerusalem. Second. That's just, what, 10 miles away maybe? Uh, yeah, something like that. It's about 20 minutes drive, 15, 20 minutes drive. And the Arab neighbors next to me are Khusan and Al-Khadr, which are, say, a couple of miles away from me each. And Jewish settlements, Neve Daniel is closest to us. It's about a mile away. Efrat is just around the corner. So we're in the middle of Gush Etzion. We are the connection to Jerusalem. There is uh, about 35 families living here. And uh, it's called Sdeboaz because it was established around Shavuot in uh, 2001. And we are connecting to the Tanakh, the Bible, the place where Boaz and Ruth made a connection. Again, we're talking about connections here or disconnecting people. So we are very in favor of connecting. We live here, um, religious and non-religious people together. We are very Zionist. We are very connected and we don't hate we don't hate Arabs, we don't hate non-Jews, we don't hate Airbnb. <laughs> so we are trying to connect, we are trying to improve connections between people. And uh, discrimination is uh, just, it's, it's just sad and stupid.
Yeah. Well, point the camera towards Jerusalem just one more time, because it's, it's a stark reminder of how small everything is in Israel, how tiny it is geographically. If that's Jerusalem, um, just a, a short drive away, uh, it's a, and you're in, quote, the disputed territories, it's amazing and a reminder how tiny a sliver of land Israel is. That was Giddy Kelman, who is an Airbnb homeowner just outside Jerusalem. He says, at least for now, he's actually still on the system, but he expects to be kicked off anytime. If you haven't yet signed our petition, please go to protestairbnb.com. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about Unifor's decade-long attack on the Alberta oil industry. Billy writes, you tell the truth about union leadership. I was in a union for years and the leadership's anti-labor narratives were not to be argued with. Most members were silently against some dogmatic actions by leadership and wouldn't dare confront them or we'd risk our positions, be shunned, bullied, and forced into doing the dirtiest jobs. Unions are one of the most authoritarian and fascist structures in our society. Uh, I have a tiny bit of uh, union experience myself, and I know what you mean. I mean, I was just obviously the, the lowest guy on the totem pole, and so I didn't dare speak up, even when I thought, saw things that were obviously not in uh, my interest, because I would just be pushed down even lower. Uh, it was not an important or a long-term job. It was really just a summer job I had. But I know what you mean. But imagine if it was a serious job, a job that you would have for decades, and where your union dues would not be a trifling amount, but would be thousands of dollars. Well, you multiply that by hundreds of thousands of members, and the boss at the top has an incredible power funded by these mandatory dues to go on political campaigns. Who wouldn't love that? Who wouldn't love not only the ability to say, I'm the union president, I speak for hundreds of thousands, but to have millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, to fight your personal battles over. And, and the style of Jerry Diaz of Unifor is one of vengeances and feuds and vendettas. Because he doesn't have, he, what was the last time he actually canvassed grassroots members about the oil sands or about anything? I bet he's never actually asked rank and file union members what they think of the oil sands. I bet he never has. John writes, it's been decades since unions have spent time, money, and energy on representing their members' interests. It is surprisingly about, it's simply about power, seeking it, getting it, and retaining it. Well, I mean, it sort of tracks the NDP, doesn't it? The NDP when they were formed, it was sort of the merger of the factory unions, city workers, and farmers. That's what the old CCF was, farmers, the CCF, and when they created the NDP, it was sort of city, union workers, country, farmers, that's your coalition. Neither of them are in the coalition anymore. Now it's basically campus activists, environmental activists, grievance industry activists. Um, that's the NDP, but Unifor, the union, allegedly still represents guys with hard hats. I remember last time I was up in Fort McMurray, I, I drove past the Unifor office. I said, Unifor represents people up here? They attack people up here. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what's so weird. The NDP is the city of the campus, is the party of the campus activist. But the Unifor still allegedly represents hardworking guys and gals. That's the disconnect. Peter writes, 
It seems so often that the devastation brought upon the Alberta oil and gas industry has gone at the very least ignored and at the most celebrated, but almost never has it been mourned. Yet Alberta is still expected to fork over the usual $15 billion per year in provincial equalization payments, even though the source of that cash is being destroyed by the very people that depend on it. Yeah, and, and of course it's an inside job. I mean, I'm sorry, it is. Rachel Notley has always been against oil and gas. Um, and she didn't lift a finger to get the pipelines through, and she refuses to talk about equalization payments, transfer payments that send tens of billions of dollars from the oil patch province to the provinces that fight against the oil patch. She's, she's an inside, she's helped undo Alberta from the inside. And that's what I say to Alberta separatists. I'd say Justin Trudeau is awful, and John Horgan in BC is awful, but most of the damage was done from Alberta by Rachel Notley. On my interview with William Kay, Bruce writes, What a fascinating interview with William Kay. I never knew that it was the elites who supported Hitler. It makes sense, since somebody had to bankroll his election campaigns. This just shows how much we don't know because of today's elites and their suppression of information. Well, yeah, I was surprised by some of the things William Kay uh, said also, but I know him enough from his work, uh, especially Environmentalism and Fascism, his very interesting website, that he researches everything and meticulously documents everything. So, uh, you know, if, if I learn something surprising from him, I'm gonna give him uh, credit uh, that he's d done his homework three times over. Um, when I interviewed him, I had not yet read the book, and so I was at his mercy for the facts. Um, to me, environmentalism in the Nazi movement was always sort of an anti-Christian, pagan spirituality, but uh, you heard his answer on that. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom.